Please open with me to Matthew 21. Let's uh, read together. Listen as I read verses 33 through 46. Here another parable, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to another or to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. There's no understatement in saying that Jesus is the most polarizing individual in the history of all of mankind. He polarizes people as those who love him and know him and follow him And those who do not, it would be an easier equation to just say, well, you have in this corner the lovers of Jesus and in this corner the haters of Jesus, but it's not that simple in a culture like ours. Most people will still say, in our culture, if you were just to ask them, I'm fine with Jesus, I'm fine with him. But they're not saying that in terms of faith and belief. They're fine with him because he said good things. He's inspiring. He died a death for his people and also for the whole world. He's quoted. He's cited still. He's referenced. He is the moral figure in our culture, at least our Western culture. He's looked to for guidance, for inspiration, for help. People pray to him who are just fine with Jesus. Yet, do they really know the whole story of who Jesus is? 
Jesus, for many people, is just the ultimate picture of grace, kindness, love, a place to run for refuge, all of which is true. And yet, it's important to understand that what the Gospel of John records is the principle that we see in Jesus' ministry time and time again, and that is that Jesus came, and in John 1.18, he came full of grace and full of truth. The truth is simply the one thing about Jesus that is offensive about Jesus to people not believing in him. People stumble over not the good part about Jesus, quote unquote, but the part about Jesus that exposes their sin back to themselves. People stumble over the truth that Jesus brought to bear. Truly, Jesus said he came as the savior of the whole world. It's a very, very inclusive statement to say that he is the savior offering himself for all to believe. And that is true. But at the same time, the truth of the matter is Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And no one can come to me, come to the father except through me. His gospel offer narrows exclusively to only those who will believe through him, in him and through him. To get to God, to, to be offered heaven, you have to follow a narrow road, which is an exclusive gospel. Exclusivity is offensive in every culture, especially the one we're in today. He's the narrow road. He's the only way. There's no other name given under heaven where someone can be saved. Jesus is it. He is the son of God. And he is our savior who comes full of grace and with the standard of truth at the same time. You say, well, why does this matter to us? We understand that. Well, it matters to you and me because we are the truth bearers. We're the ones who go in Jesus' name bringing this exclusive gospel. When you think of the truth, you should think of God's holiness because it's his holy standard. When you bring the truth to bear in someone's life, it is Sin exposing, as I said, it's a mirror back to themselves of their own sin. The closer that you get to the truth and, and really dig deep in Bible study and begin to ask yourself personal questions beyond just intellectual Bible study, but also life Bible study where you're thinking in terms of how you live, in terms of being like Jesus, that's an exposing um, discipline. It is something that increasingly becomes uncomfortable to do. The truth has been compared to the sun. The closer you get to the light of the sun, the more blemishes you'll see on your skin. And actually, if you're physically moving towards the sun in any sort of astronomical way, you're becoming more and more jeopardized the closer you get to it, unless you're shielded. It's the same way with the truth. The closer you get to the truth, the more stuff is exposed in your life. And if you're an unbeliever and you're going closer and closer to truth, you're exposed on a level that becomes jeopardizing to your own soul, hardening up, going, I don't want him. It's too much to bear. It's increasingly uneasy to be nearer and nearer to Jesus. This is the Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus that the world is not fine with. Jesus is in both inspirational and convicting at the same time. As he moved into the epicenter of Jerusalem, 
the epicenter of Israel and into the religious center of the temple. Midweek, he's bringing the truth to bear and people are reacting to him in one of two ways. You have the remnant believers and you have by and large most people rejecting Jesus who's coming as the Savior and Lamb. We saw him cleanse the temple, verses 12 to 16. Racketeers versus the innocents, those who are scam artists versus people praising God in the temple. In verses 17 to 22, it was apostates versus believers. You have Jesus who curses the fig tree as an example of apostasy versus those who are believing. In verses 23 through 27, you have Jesus' authority that's being challenged on the temple stage, which is probably Solomon's portico. The religious leaders at this point are confronting him publicly to shame him, questioning his authority. They were fraudulent versus his authenticity. And then last week, Jesus launches into a parable to answer this accusation and exposes those who are two-faced as one son who says he's going to do one thing and doesn't do it versus those with integrity or the integrists, 28 to 32, that parable where you have the righteous son who said he wasn't going to do it, but then he actually followed the will of God. Now we come to this parable that I've just read where you have murderers versus marvelers. Murderers, meaning they're getting closer to the sun and the Pharisees and the scribes are really, really becoming incited in their own heart to have Jesus arrested so they can kill him because he is bothering them. This is the challenge that we face as we carry the message of this polarizing figure. Are you up? For the exposure of God's word in your own life. Are you up for that? And are you up for bringing the word of God to bear in other people's lives which will expose their sin? John 3, 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The people who love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest the works should be exposed. But everyone that, everyone, I'm sorry, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So you have this light and darkness, you have people wanting to be exposed and people are wanting to hide. It's always that way in gospel witness. And we see that here. There's increasing levels of grace that are given in this parable. And it's picturing uh, an increasing level of darkness that's both combative and retreating. It's what you see. What we're going to have here is an outline is increasing rounds of grace and truth. And the first round of grace is verses 33 to 35. Grace is sent at verse 33 here another parable there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased to leased it to tenants and went into another country when the season for fruit drew near he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit let's stop there 
It's the second parable. It's about the vineyard. The vineyard is a picture of Israel. It's a picture of, of life. Any vineyard is a, a lively place to work back then. It was a choice occupation to be farmers of land like this, to be an owner of a, vi- a vineyard meant you were wealthy and it was a fruit producing, very um, lucrative uh, profession to be in. Similar, if you've ever been to Southern California, it's the same latitudinal line all the way across to Israel. You have these desert um, areas that are equally very fertile at the same time, near water, Israel near the Mediterranean Sea. Anytime an area is irrigated like that, it's very plentiful in terms of the fruit and the vineyard. And so to have a wine press and grape crushing business where you have wine and and fruit overflowing, that's, that's a nice place to be. And Jesus is saying that being in the kingdom of God, being part of the family of God as believers is like working and compared to being a worker in the vineyard. And that's what he's saying. And and a lot of people will overly analyze parables and make them mean a lot of things that they don't mean by allegorizing them. And there's usually, there's always one point to be found in a parable, but you need to see that there are clear connections made to Christ has come. He is the son in this parable that's ultimately sent. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, which are called chief priests here, the whole of the religious leadership is rejecting the son. Uh, They are saying that they're in the vineyard. They're saying they're part of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is the vineyard. I'm inside God's kingdom. And yet they do not want the son. It's the people who are just fine with Jesus until he brings the truth to bear in their own life. (laughs) Then it exposes their heart. Well, these religious leaders, they believe they're in the vineyard. The vineyard is representative of life and joy in God. And the construction of it is verse 33. It's planted. It's, there's a fence around it, which would have been like a thorn bush fence or a stony fence to keep um, the, the bad people out, thieves out. And it, you know, there was a dug a wine press and then a tower is built for security. That's the um, vantage point to see any of the enemies that would be coming from the outside. And then it's leased to tenants, which you could use as a word. Um, You could substitute the word farmer. There's a bunch of farmers inside the vineyard. And then this business owner just leaves his investment to them, the hirelings, and, and he goes to another country. But then as the season draws near... He sends slaves, servants. Doulos is the word here for slave. He's sending as a master his specific people who are his proxy workers to come and go to the tenant, go to the farmers and receive the fruit. It's very simple what's happening here. God's nation is um, represented here. The sent ones, the apostelion, are the ones that are a picture of all of the prophets of all of the ages that have gone to Israel and have said, are you in the kingdom? Are you fruit bearing? Are you real? That's what a prophet is doing. God is real. His wrath is coming. Where are you in light of that? Show me the fruit. Show me the evidence. And so these slaves in this parable are are saying, we want to receive the wine. We want to see the fruit of your labor and for that to go back to the master because this is your appropriate role as a steward of this land. 
The word sent is used over and over again. You need to see that, verse 34, verse 36 and 37. In the English Standard Version, you'll see the word sent, which is apostelion. You'll hear that word apostle in that. Um, apostles were sent ones or proxy. The word sent could be... Uh, you could transpose the word grace in your mind as you hear that word sent. Every time God sent a prophet, every time God sent an apostle, every time God sends God's word out, it's grace to people, even if they reject it. The tenets are the ones who turn out to be the enemies. It's sad to think that, Because the tower is built to look out for the enemies on the outside, but these are the enemy within. They're the ones who become murderous. They're the ones who become hateful of Christ. Look at what it says they do. The tenants or the farmers took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. They beat one, they kill another, And then they kill one publicly as an example. That's the idea here. That's the simplicity here. In Mark 12, if you'll turn over there, Mark's account is a little bit more specific and defined in terms of what happened. Verse 2, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit from the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. You're going back with nothing, like to mock the master. And again, he sent... To them, another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. They shamed the second one, and he sent another, and they killed him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. So it just becomes this repetitive cycle. We did it with the first three, and then it becomes a repetitive cycle with the second round of grace. What's happening? Why? Why is the master tolerating this behavior with the first three at all? Well, some records would say, this uh, historic record called the papyrus, that a hands-off landlord would sort of by de facto create entitled farmers. (laughs) And that's uh, a principle in life, a hands-off boss. If you don't manage, you don't manage attitudes, personalities, and the family life that's going on in your organization, suddenly people will become attitudinally entitled and problematic. And in this case, you see a coup takeover where you have tenants or farmers saying, you know what, I don't like my position. I think I want the position of master. And so I'll just beat, kill, and slay and humiliate the master's slaves that come. Perhaps they were disrespecting these slaves as subhuman people. We don't know. They um, had some entitlement as if a higher order in the pecking order of things. Levitical law forbade this to happen. It countered this with farmers. Uh, You had a five-year cycle before a farmer could take any of the harvest for himself. The fourth year, it says, all fruit shall be a holy offering to the Lord, Leviticus 19.24. But in this case, there was something brewing right out the chute, right out the gate, with this situation. Who were the slaves? Well, they might be named by people from the Old Testament. Listen, Elijah was driven away, 1 Kings 19. Isaiah was sawn in two, historically um, speaking. Zechariah was stoned to death, 2 Corinthians or Chronicles 12, 24, 21. And then John the Baptist was beheaded. 
Why did the tenants do this? Well, they had an entitlement mindset over property that really wasn't theirs in the first place. That's what happened. They hardened up. If we protect uh, our household or our families from harm, from enemies that come to our house, you know, we we need to do that. That's called love. That's called love. That's called self-sacrifice. That's the right thing to do. It's not Christian not to protect your family. We, we do that. I've got funny stories that I'm just going to suppress right now about all those things. But, but you know, it, it is a, a truth to, to be protective. At the same time, when you kind of raise up with this entitlement attitude that can, that can crop up where you go, I earned what I earned. My stuff is my stuff. And if somebody comes to my property to take my stuff, I'm going to take them out. Jesus... Teaching would counter that. If they take one cloak, you give them the other one. Um, It's not wrong to be defrauded. It's very freeing to understand that difference and distinction, but there's a difference between being loving and protective and being lustful and entitled. That's where the sin lie in these tenants, in these farmers. They weren't playing the role of steward. What does God do? What does the master do? He's He's a... picture of God. We'll look at verse 36. It says, again, he sent other servants sent. He's gracing these farmers by sending more slaves, more servants, more than the first. And they did the same to them. They were in a pattern behavior. Uh, the, the farmers were privileged. They, they believed that they should be entitled. And so they just began to kill off whoever was showing up, beating and killing and being irrational. You say, well, the master wasn't rational, sending slaves in the first place. But we need to understand that this is a parable picture of God. God is not naive. God is not unthinking in what he's doing. He's exposing the sinfulness of sin that as you give grace and give more grace, if people don't receive that grace, they become more and more hard in their hearts and entitled. The truth is coming to bear. Grace is coming to bear. The, the come to God truly and genuinely message is coming to bear. And people will either say, yes, I want to be a steward of God. I want to be part of the kingdom of God. I, I don't own any of, this, any of this really. I lay it all at your feet. I'm part of your mission. I'm part of your family. Or you say, I'm kicking against it. I don't want it. I want stuff for me. I want the title of master. I'm not content with being a farmer. And so I will kill off God's servants. We need to understand this. For our own heart's sake, but also for our attitude as we bring truth. We're either being exposed by truth or as we bring the truth, we're exposing people by bringing the truth. The Lord requires a stewardship mindset of every Christian. American culture can defy that where you say, no, I've got, this is the land of opportunity for me. This is my shot. And yet God is our master. He leads us as our king and we are led under his theocracy. Though we are American citizens, we're part of this country, we're part of this world. We have a kingdom that's above this world. We own our homes. We earned our homes, but our homes really aren't our homes. We own our car or boat or 
you know, whatever, insert your favorite Alaskan toy. We own that stuff, but we don't. It's all God's. It's all for his glory. It should be. We own our health when we really don't. God owns our health. We own our children. We don't own our children. God, they're God's children. And we hold it all with an open hand, and then you're free, but you're free as you are submissive within the kingdom, submitting to the lordship of Christ in your life. God owns it all. Joseph um, fought the temptation of temptations where Potiphar's wife um, went for him day after day after day in, um, in lustful you know, temptation, and he was able to see his opportunity being a steward in Potiphar's house. This is in the account, Genesis 37 to the end of Genesis. But Joseph was this man of God who said, how can I do this very thing? How could I fall into sin in this way when God has given me stewardship over all these things? He's not withheld anything from me. Potiphar has not withheld anything from from me in Potiphar's house, but you. And so why would I take the one thing that is not my own? That's a stewardship mindset. And he fled the temptation. We're Christians. We're little followers of Christ. Christian means little Christ. We're little followers. We embrace that he is king, he is God, and we are stewards. Returning to the parable again, they were beating and killing People. Who were these people? Hebrews 11 names people in the hall of faith. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. People who conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Verse 33 of chapter 11, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Listen to this, verse 37. This is the offer of grace to an unbelieving apostate nation that was called the kingdom of God on earth. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended, through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, the church is kind of the end of the story. God's perfect plan is filled out in what they laid the foundation for. The sent ones, what we're a part of. Well, round three, round three of sending. Verses 37 to 46, God sends the most grace. He sent grace, he sent more grace, and he sends the most grace. What's the most grace? Verse 37, finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. Will they? It says, but when the the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. Let's do that. What happens? 
Well, again, we have to be careful not to cast God as naive just because he's the picture of the master here. This is a picture of grace upon grace. This is God overriding the sin that he understands is being exposed. He knows there's sin. He knows it's exacerbating. It's, it's growing. It's worse and worse and worse. And yet he sends the son anyway. Isn't that what he did for us? Isn't that what he did for you and me? He's hoping that people will come to their senses and repent and believe. In this case, the picture of the scribes and the Pharisees, the unbelieving apostate nation would not repent. But he sent the son. He sent the son. It's the ultimate picture of grace and truth. Um, If you take the attitude of a steward... That's a radical departure from mainline American rationale, but thinking. But if you take the attitude of a long-suffering master like this, that's even more radical in our culture. I'm sending my son anyway, and they certainly will respect him. Mark 12, 6, it was the beloved son, specifically there. God's not naive. He's not short-sighted. Yet, He was doing the ultimate example of grace by sending his son. Kent Hughes said, in sending the son, there was nothing more God could do. What happens? The tenants go in the extreme opposite direction away from the son. Instead of going towards him, instead of embracing him, they run from him. To kill him. They are seizing their opportunity, it says, to kill the son and gain the inheritance. They want to move up the ladder from farmer to master. We'll have his inheritance. We want to crush the son. And this murderous act is premeditated. We see him coming and we're going to kill him. People that kill Christ in their hearts are dangerously close to being fully apostate, going to hell. Where Christ is offered, where grace is offered, where you give the truth, when it's spurned on such a level where it's, as Hebrews 6 says, you're crucifying again again the Lord to yourself. It's as if you're running trod over Christ and the gospel. Repentance for those people will not be allowed. The door to grace is suddenly shut. Hebrews 13, 12 says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. This corresponds with verse 39. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus was the sacrifice that was not even worthy in the minds of the Israelites to be crucified in town in Jerusalem. They throw him out with the trash. You're outside the camp. We don't want anything to do with this Jesus. This is utterly 180 out from a culture that says, I'm fine with Jesus. I'm fine to quote him. I'm fine to have him mentioned here and there. I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, but they're really not fine. The truth will expose where people really are. And in this case, it was premeditated murder. Martin Luther said, if I were God and the world had treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces, kicking the world to pieces. It's not what the master did, though. Verse 40. 
And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. It says, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? This is the question of questions. This is the ultimate question that has to be answered. What will he do? Remember David, when he heard the confrontation of Nathan and Nathan the prophet came and he said, you know, there was a rich owner who had all these sheep. And then there was the family, you know, who had one sheep that was like a pet and guests came to town. And instead of taking his own sheep, he went to the family sheep and basically butchered their, their pet lamb, right? Inner, you know, lamb noises, you know. And, and, then, and then Nathan, knowing he had hooked David's emotion, Uh, And understanding that David believed this was a true story, said, what should we do with that owner? And he said, you know, you should kill him. And um, really, it was a picture of David and his own sin. That's how these Pharisees and Sadducees should have seen this story, because they get the point, but they don't understand the application. Verse 41, and they said to him, answering the question, What will become of the tenants? They said, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to the other, to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus had hooked the emotion of the Pharisees and Sadducees and they saw this for what it was. They weren't yet applying it to themselves. They're just saying, you know, right is right. And they're murdering even the the son, this proxy figure of the owner. And so Jesus then in verse 42 begins to apply this to them, to show them where they are misguided, not understanding how they need to repent. It begins in verse 42 by a commendation of Christ, and he does it with quoting scripture. He's quoting Psalm 118. It says, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? Obviously they had. Psalm 118 is part of the hosannas that were sung when Jesus was marching in on triumph triumphal entry a few days before but in psalm 118 it says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone this was the lord's doing and it was marvelous in our eyes Uh, this is a construction metaphor changing word pictures here a building project and it's the stone that's rejected it's like you've got uh, a bunch of stones to choose from, pick and choose, and you got to find one that's going to be a cornerstone. I don't know much about construction. I'm not, uh, you know, a, an engineer, but a cornerstone is this weight-bearing stone, as I understand it, that the house is all sort of like counting on that stone to be the most solid stone in the house, so that everything stays structurally sound no matter what happens, and it is what what anchors the foundation of the structure. You take the stone out, it's like like playing Jenga and the house is unstructurally sound and could fall apart. That's the picture of the cornerstone. This stone that the builders rejected, they, they're holding the perfect cornerstone. They go, yeah, I don't want it. I don't want it. I'm throwing it out. That's the picture of death. And then resurrection has become the cornerstone, was raised to life. He's the head of the church. He's the true cornerstone. Some will relabel this as the capstone because it's a stone that actually could fall on someone and crush. It's the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in their eyes. This was originally about David and Jesus's picking this out of Psalm 118 to apply to himself to say, I am that cornerstone. 
And you are either seeing me for who I am, marveling that I'm here, or you're rejecting me. He's letting the scripture do the work, letting the word say these things, not himself. He is the son. David, in Psalm 118, um, was this picture of redemption. In verse 12 of Psalm 118, it said that he was surrounded as if by, by enemies, as if surrounded by bees. And in verse 21, David says, thanks be to God for answering me in my desperation. You've answered me and have become my salvation. The salvation picture is, is what Jesus is grabbing on to saying, I am that savior. David had been rejected and now he was being redeemed and being affirmed. Jesus had been rejected in death at the cross, and then he would be the cornerstone. This is all the prediction that he's saying as a messianic psalm, this is about me. It's Wednesday. The ultimate rejection is coming. The first verse in Psalm 118.1 says, The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The last verse of Psalm 18 20 is 20, verse 29. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. It's bracketed in God's faithfulness. And Jesus had come to be this faithful Savior. There's grace in this passage because people's eyes open and actually see it. In Acts 4, more people were coming to see that Jesus is the Savior And Peter is quoting Psalm 118 again, verse 8. It was the story where Peter actually healed a a cripple man at the Temple Mount steps in the same area that Jesus was, probably months later. It says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if you are willing, if we are willing to be examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by what means this man has been healed. Let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ that goes out to all of the world. Just like this man was healed. It's amazing grace to everyone. This is the Jesus that people are fine with. It's this awesome, open, sacrificial love that then is brought narrow really quickly where he says there's no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved only one way. I still remember the uh, Larry King live interviews with John MacArthur. Who remembers those? Do you ever watch those? You ever see those? YouTube those? Those are some twenty some years ago. And Larry King, he yeah, I was in a, a small group one time where John MacArthur was there, and he was talking about it. And he said Larry King looked at him and said, "You know, John, I love you. I love you." And he really meant it on a surface level. I don't know if Larry King, you know, became a Christian before he died, but um, and he was this great interviewer and had this relationship with John MacArthur. But John, in those interviews, if you watch, you know, you have people who will say very broad things about the love of God. And, you know, God is this generic sort of genie in the sky sort of person. And then Jesus, and then, and then John would quote a passage like this about Jesus in Acts 4, that there's no other name 
given under heaven, given among men where someone would be saved. And, every, you know, the air is sucked out of the room. I guess we can't like him anymore. That's how Christianity is. And Jesus condemns the Pharisees based on what he's just said. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruits. Just going to be stripped away. It's condemning the Pharisees. They got it in verse 41. They understood that they didn't deserve the kingdom if they would apply that rightly. They weren't producing fruit. Prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And Jesus Christ himself, the ultimate prophet, sent, rejected, spurned, persecuted. We don't want to hear it. Grace upon grace. We don't want to hear it. A true kingdom citizen will produce fruit, by the way. We will produce fruit. Israel was, you know, sort of put on standstill in their apostasy. The church is the, the picture of the vineyard today that we are in. There's no wall or barrier between Jew and Gentile. We are the people of God on earth. We are the vineyard that, that is producing fruit. If you are a true Christian, you are a fruit producing Christian. As the servant comes and says, is there fruit? Yeah, we have fruit. The Holy Spirit comes and says, is there fruit? There is fruit. We're fruit producing. Just like in this parable, we would say, yes, here's the fruit of our labor. We are stewards here on earth of the kingdom of God, and the fruit is being born out of our lives. Verse 44, here's the outcome of apostasy. It says, the one who falls, the, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What's going on there? It's the picture of the cornerstone. I've always thought maybe it's a picture of grace at first where you trip over the cornerstone and you're broken in your sin and you go, okay, I believe. But really, I think that both of these phrases are an example of being crushed by the cornerstone. Jesus is citing at this point um, from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2. Do you remember in Daniel 2 when Nebuchadnezzar had his dream uh, after Israel had been taken into Babylonian captivity. Daniel is there. He's sort of captive to um, Nebuchadnezzar, and he interprets this massive dream where Nebuchadnezzar is seeing this statue, this erected statue, which different parts of the statue represent different kingdoms that will be built and ultimately will rise up to no avail because they'll be crushed. Daniel chapter 2, verse 34, it says, Then the iron... The clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold altogether were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That vision is carried on in verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor a kingdom nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and break them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw, a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and the interpretation sure. You know who the rock is in this picture? This is a picture of Christ. Christ is the ultimate stone, the rock of offense. He's the one that brings all the kingdoms down to his feet. 
And that's what he's applying here to these Pharisees, these chief priests. The kingdom will be taken from them and they will be crushed. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, this is conjuring fear. It was confirming outcomes and then conjuring fear. They heard these parables. They perceived that he's speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they wanted to kill him for it. They feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. They're afraid politically. They didn't want to lose their position. It wasn't time. They wanted to kill him, but they were afraid to even follow their own conviction of hate at that point because of their own fear. Again, what I said before, are we ready to be exposed by the truth and be will- are we willing to expose others with the truth? The closer you get to the sun, the more uncomfortable it becomes to bear it, the more stuff is exposed. Being close to truth does that. Isaiah felt this in Isaiah 6 when he pronounced a woe judgment, being in the presence of the Lord. Paul, at the end of his life, he had called himself a former blasphemer of the church, but as a born-again believer, apostle, defender of the faith, in 2 Timothy, he called himself the chief of sinners. Why? Because he was close to Jesus, and he knew his own sin, but he knew the grace of the gospel. Listen to what C.H. Spurgeon said about this parable as we close. It's the pleading of the loss of the last messenger, the pleading of the last messenger under that sermon. He said, if you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest.